Well, please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, Matthew, Mark, and we're resuming our study in Mark's Gospel, and we come this morning to Mark chapter 13, and I'm reading the first four verses, which will be our text, Mark 13, verses 1 to 4. It reads like this, as he, Jesus, was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, teacher, Behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately. Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? Well, friends, with the words of verse 1, as he was going out of the temple, Jesus Christ leaves the temple in Jerusalem for the final time. He will never in his earthly life return to its precincts again. The day before, this was Tuesday, the day, or this was, um, yeah, Tuesday, that day, Tuesday, He had spent in the temple courts, and you remember how one group of enemies after another came to challenge him, each one taking a different angle to try to trap Jesus in his words, to find some grounds of accusation against him so that they would put him to death. Every one of his enemies was foiled in their treacherous and incriminating questions. They were foiled as Jesus uh, responded with the wisdom of a serpent and the harmlessness of a dove. All his foes were silenced. And after they were, he went on the offensive. After being pummeled with all of their questions, Jesus came to them with the questions, and he asked the scribes, so how can can the Messiah be both David's son and David's Lord? And he spoke to them from Psalm 110. And he exposed the fact that the scribes, the religious teachers, really did not understand about the coming Messiah. And then not only does he attack their teaching, but Jesus exposes the bad character of these teachers, these scribes. He tells how they're motivated to please men and they're filled with pride and they make showy prayers and they like the places of honor at the banquets and how um, um, they treat widows, they devour widows' houses, and, and how their con- coming condemnation is great. And Jesus warns against the false teachers, the scribes. And then, as if to further accentuate the errors of the scribes in their treatment of widows, Jesus points to a poor widow in the temple who comes in, and whereas many people were giving a lot of money, she puts in a couple of pennies everything she owned, as if to say, this is how you're supposed to regard widows. This is how God regards widows, not devouring their houses as the scribes do, but showing esteem and respect and appreciation for them. So Jesus leaves the temple, having shut down every one of his enemies, But how did he leave the temple that day? After these verbal duels with his enemies, did he leave with the triumphalism of a proud debater? Did he come away gloating over the fact that he had trounced his enemies with his words? No, actually quite the opposite. The words with which Jesus left the temple that day are recorded by Matthew. You need not turn there, but in Matthew 23, 37, 
These were the words with which Jesus left the temple. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. These are not triumphal gloating words. These are pleading words. These are the words of a grieved Messiah. And that was Jesus as he left the temple. Now, as he's leaving the temple for this final time, he has this interchange with his disciples, which leads him to make some profound prophetic predictions. What follows in Mark 13 here is what is known as the Olivet Discourse, because he spoke these words on the Mount of Olives. The parallels are in Matthew 24 and Luke 21. And brothers and sisters, this is one of the most difficult chapters in all of the synoptic gospels to understand. And the reason is this. In this chapter, as we will see in future weeks, Jesus predicts the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, the destruction of the temple, but he also predicts his second coming at the end of the age. And the challenge is to try to sort out when is he talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD and when is he talking about his second coming? It's not easy to sort out and commentators are all over the place. That will be our challenge in the days ahead. And you can pray for me in that. But for this morning, I want to cover only the occasion that gives rise to this discourse. And we're only going to cover these first four verses. And we're going to see three things. The perception of the disciples, the prediction of Jesus, and then the question of the disciples. So first, the perception of the disciples. Look again at verse 1. He's leaving the temple. And as he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Now keep in mind, well, keep in mind that the words that are ringing in the disciples' ears are those words that Jesus spoke as recorded by Matthew, where he leaves the temple and he says, behold, your house is being left to you desolate. Now that would have referred to all of Jerusalem, but certainly would have included the temple. Jesus is pronouncing condemnation upon the city and upon the temple. And these words would have been shocking to the disciples. And as they're leaving the temple, in light of what Jesus has just said, they're probably thinking, can this really be true? So here, as they're traveling from the temple to the Mount of Olives, as they make their ascent, climbing up the Mount of Olives, the temple complex comes into view. And they catch a glimpse of the magnificence of the temple and the surrounding buildings. Mark says one of his disciples... Matthew says his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings. Luke says some were talking about the temple. But according to Mark, one of his disciples was the spokesman. And he says to Jesus, in light of Jesus' statement that your house is being left to you desolate, the disciple says, teacher, behold what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And I want us to note three things about the disciples' perception, what they saw. First of all, this one disciple and all the disciples looked at the temple physically. They were looking at this temple physically. 
Now, from what we read, this temple was an awe-inspiring sight to believe. The temple complex had been rebuilt and expanded by Herod the Great. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry in John 2, we read that they had been at it for 46 years. By this time, they had been at it for nearly 50 years. And there were still a couple more decades uh, that they would work on the temple. One commentator says about the temple, the occasion of Jesus' prophecy of the impending destruction of the temple was the awe and reverence with which the disciples regarded the spectacle of the temple area. They were astonished at the magnificence of the construction and adornment of the sanctuary and its complex of courts, porches, balconies, and buildings. They particularly marveled at the massive size of the stones which were used in the structure and substructure of the temple, remarking on Herodian masonry, Josephus, a Jewish historian of that day, states that the temple was built of hard white stones, each of which was about 25 cubits in length. That's 37 and a half feet. Imagine a big white stone, 37 and a half feet long. It was eight feet in height. That's 12 feet high and 12 uh, or cubits. That's 18 feet in width. On another occasion, he remarks that these huge stones were also ornate. The buildings of the area which uh, prompted the disciples' comment would include not only the sanctuary itself with its magnificent facade, but its series of enclosures and the related structures of smaller buildings joined to it by colonnade courts covering approximately one-sixth of the old city of Jerusalem. And he goes on, The buildings were magnificent. Structurally, architecturally, they were magnificent. And the disciples were clearly taken up with the beauty and magnificence of the temple and the surrounding buildings. It captivated them. It filled their senses. And they are so enamored that they called the attention of Jesus to it. It's like, Jesus, behold, teacher, Jesus, you got to see this. They were so enamored of the temple buildings, they wanted Jesus to take it in and drink it in with his own senses. And friends, you know how it is. Whenever we see something that is breathtakingly beautiful, you don't want to enjoy it alone, do you? You want somebody else to see it with you. Doesn't that happen in our home? Honey, come, look look at the sunrise. Look at the splash of colors. Look at that beautiful sunset. Look at the colors. Or if we're looking at some... um, Beautiful panoramic view of of the Amish farmlands. You call attention to it. Let's take this in together. If you're traveling west and you see the outline of the Rocky Mountains, you want to enjoy it with other people. The Grand Canyon, you don't want to just peer into that alone. You want other people to enter in with you. Occasionally, we walk in the meadows near our home. We're privileged to live near Marsh Creek State Park. And inevitably, whenever my wife and I walk, at some point, she's going to say, Chuck, stop you got to look at this. And we're looking over a farmhouse and the the meadow and the lake, and she wants me to drink in the beauty of it, the wonder of it, as she is doing. And so that's what the disciples are doing. Jesus, you got to see this. you got to look at what we're seeing. Look how magnificent, how wonderful these buildings are. And in the back of their mind is, Lord, do you really mean that these things are going to be destroyed? They're so magnificent. They're so beautiful. So the disciples looked at the temple physically, and it was a sight to behold. Further, the disciples looked at the temple presently. They looked at the temple and the surrounding buildings as they were then. They had no thought in their mind that this would ever be different. 
No thought in their mind that there would ever be devastation and destruction to these magnificent buildings. They looked at the buildings physically. They looked at the buildings in their present reality. And they looked at the buildings, we might say, proudly. What emotion do you hear from their voice when they say, teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. You get a sense of pride, right? This is, this is in our country. This is, this is uh, in our city. We're proud of the wonderful building that this is. It's a national structure. It's the glory of our country. And again, we can relate to that if we're bringing somebody to our country, we go to New York and we show them the Empire State Building, formerly the Twin Towers, the Statue of Liberty, and there could be a little national pride. So many immigrants have seen this and it's, it marks for them freedom from persecution and oppression. And we can still have a little bit of nationalistic pride, right? My daughter had her friend from Uganda, interestingly, visiting uh, this past week, and she wanted to see Philadelphia, and she hadn't seen Philadelphia, so we said, okay, we've got to do Philly. So took her to the Independence Hall, took her to see the Liberty Bell. Of course, we had to get a South Philly cheesesteak, and I said, you need to have a soft pretzel if you're going to do Philly. So there's a little bit of pride there. Or if we bring somebody locally, we take them to Longwood Gardens, right? And we say, you know, people have come from all over the world to see these beautiful gardens. Or Shady Maple Smorgasbord. <laughs> what does the billboard say? Biggest smorgasbord in the nation, right? I suppose they would have been sued for false advertising. That must be true, right? Let me take you to the place you could really get fat. <laughs> Biggest smorgasbord in the country, and so there's a little bit of pride. Well, they were proud of these buildings. This is part of our nation, and it's the glory of our nation. So here we have the perception of the disciples as they get a view of the temple complex. They're enraptured with its beauty, with its magnificence. They're seeing it physically. They're seeing it in its present reality, and they're looking somewhat proudly at the buildings of the temple. But secondly, consider the prediction of Jesus. They say, teacher, you got to see this. Wonderful stones, wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to them, verse 2, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. So the disciples are coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, behold, Jesus, you got to see this. Well, Jesus is responding and in effect saying to them, you're looking through the eyes of flesh, but I want you to see through the eyes of faith and revelation. I, I want you to take another look at those buildings that you're marveling at, and I want you to see what I see when I look at the buildings, because it's different from what you see. And so with regard to Jesus' prediction about the building, I want us to note three things. Whereas the disciples looked at the buildings physically, Jesus looked at the temple spiritually. What did he see when he looked at the magnificent marble, the decorations of gold, the exquisite architecture, the beautiful masonry? He was not impressed. Jesus wasn't impressed because he was looking at the temple complex through the flaming eyes of truth, and he saw beyond the buildings to what was going on within the building. 
just the day before he had come into the temple and with holy anger turned over the tables, drove out the money changers, inflamed with rage that they had turned his father's house, which was supposed to be a a place of humble, reverent prayer, even for the Gentiles, into a robber's den where the religious leaders were, were making money off of the poor pilgrims by overcharging them for animals. And Jesus was filled with holy violence for what was happening inside the temple. He saw the temple as in charge of the Sadducees, the Sadducean priesthood. And they were the theological liberals of that day. They didn't believe in the whole Bible, only the Pentateuch. They didn't believe in spirits, didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in in the resurrection unto life. They were theological liberals. They were the ones running the temple. He saw the temple as the center of a Judaism that had become corrupt. The scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders, were more concerned about impressing people than pleasing God. They coveted the places of honor in the banquets and in the synagogues. They made long prayers. They went around with flowing robes. They loved uh, expressions of honor in the marketplaces. They were men who were careful to tithe their little spices very scrupulously, but they ignored the big issues of justice and mercy and faithfulness. He saw in that temple building It represented leaders who had nullified the word of God, choked out the word of God by their man-made traditions. All their rules, all their laws added to the law of God, which ended up choking out the word of God. He said, they draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. He saw those buildings as representing a religious establishment that had almost wholesale rejected him. He was the long-prophesied, long-anticipated Messiah, Christ of God, foreshadowing um, or pointing, fulfilling all of the, uh, the, the sacrifice of the Old Testament. And yet, for the most part, Israel rejected him. They were a people who had the covenants of God, the promises of God, the law of God, the temple service, the system of, of sacrifices, all pointing forward to him. And there he was in their midst. And Israel had largely rejected him. So Jesus, when he looked at the temple, he didn't see it physically and superficially with the eyes of of flesh. He saw it with the eyes of faith. And what he saw grieved him and angered him. So Jesus looked at the buildings, not physically, but spiritually. Further, Jesus looked at the temple, not presently, but prospectively. They saw it in its present grandeur and magnificence, thinking nothing's ever going to happen to these buildings. Jesus looked at these buildings in what he knew was going to happen in not too many years. He says in verse 2, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. And in the Greek language, it expresses great certainty. Not one stone, and the Greek has ume, a double negative, as if to say, not at all, by no means, which will not, again, a double negative, ume, be destroyed. Now, in English, when we use a double negative, it becomes a positive. Husbands, if you say to your wife, I will never not love you, what you're saying is I'm going to love you always. The two negatives make a positive, but not in Greek. In Greek, the double negative, ume, just intensifies it. So what Jesus is saying here is this is going to happen. 
These buildings are going to be destroyed. There's no way it is not going to happen. Ooh, may. Double negative. And Jesus is here speaking prophetically. As the coming prophet promised by Moses, remember Moses said, God will raise up a prophet like me from among you. You shall listen to him. Jesus is the prophet, capital P. And as a prophet of God, he is predicting what will come to pass. He is saying, in effect, you marvel at the beautiful construction of those buildings. What I see is a heap of rubble. Now, this prophecy follows well on the heels of what Jesus had said when he cleansed the temple. If you turn back just for a moment to Mark eleven seventeen, as Jesus comes into the city, he began to teach and say to them, is it not written, my house shall be called the house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. And he cleanses the temple. Those words are taken from Jeremiah 8, 7, Jeremiah 7. You need not turn there, but just listen as I turn us back for a moment to Jeremiah 7, beginning at verse 8. Listen to what was true in Jeremiah's day. Behold, you are trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, offer sacrifices to Baal, and walk after other gods that you have not known? Then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered that you may do all these abominations? Has this house, that was the temple then, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? And then a few verses later, verse 14, he says, therefore I will do to the house which is called by my name in which you trust and to the place which I I give you and gave you and your fathers as I did to Shiloh, I will cast you out of my sight. And of course, he's predicting then that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, would come in and destroy that temple. And now Jesus is saying, even as that temple was destroyed under the judgment of God, now this temple, this Herodian temple, is also going to be destroyed under the judgment of God. Now you ask, did it happen? It is recorded in secular history as an undeniable fact that in 70 AD, 40 years after Jesus spoke these words, The Roman general Titus Vespasian, with his Roman legion, swept into Jerusalem after a long siege, destroyed the city and temple. And one of the historians who recorded the event was an eyewitness, the Jewish historian Flavius Josephus. He he was pro-Roman, but he's generally considered a trustworthy historical source. And this is what he records about what happened to that temple in 70 A.D., That building, the temple at Jerusalem, however, God long ago had sentenced to the flames. But now in the revolution of the time periods, the fateful day had arrived. The 10th of the month, Los, the very day on which previously it had been burned by the king of Babylon. One of the soldiers, neither awaiting orders nor filled with horror of so dread an undertaking, but moved by some supernatural impulse, snatched a brand from the blazing timber and hoisted up by one of his fellow soldiers, flung the fiery missile through a golden window. When the flame rose, a scream as poignant as the tragedy went up from the Jews. Now that the object which before them, before they had guarded so closely was going to ruin. While the sanctuary was burning, neither pity nor for age nor respect for rank was shown. On the contrary, children and old people, laity and priests alike were massacred. The emperor ordered the entire city and sanctuary to be razed to the ground, to be leveled. 
except only the highest towers and that part of the wall that enclosed the city on the west. All the rest of the wall that surrounded the city was so completely raised to the ground as to leave future visitors to the spot, no reason to believe that it had ever even been inhabited. Exactly what Jesus said in 30 AD happened 40 years later in 70 AD. So Jesus looks at the temple, not in its present beauty and grandeur, but with a view to the coming destruction. And here announces what will happen in 70 AD. And it was not simply a political thing. It was not what incited the Romans was the insurrection of the Jews, but more deeply, it was because the nation had apostatized against God. It was the judgment of God upon Israel. And then thirdly, Jesus looked at the temple sadly. The disciples looked at these marvelous buildings and there was a note of pride. Look at these Buildings, Jesus, they're part of our nation. It's the glory of our nation. Something to be proud of. Not so with Jesus. Jesus looked at the temple, knowing what was going to happen under the judgment of God, and his heart was heavy with sadness. He had already pierced the air with his cry, according to Matthew 23, when he came into the city, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. They looked at the temple with pride. Jesus looked with grief. You know, it says in the book of Ezekiel that God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Are you aware of that? God takes no delight in the death of the wicked. He doesn't. And here's the God-man, God in the flesh, Jesus, and he's taking no delight in the coming destruction of Jerusalem. He is grieved in his holy heart about what is coming down. So, you see the contrast between what the disciples saw and what Jesus saw. They looked at the temple physically and they were captivated with its beauty. Jesus looked spiritually and he was grieved over what was happening. They looked at its present condition. and He looked futuristically as what was going to happen. They viewed the temple beaming with at least some nationalistic pride. Jesus had nothing but sadness and grief in his heart as he looked at that temple. And then thirdly, the question of the disciples, verses three and four. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately. Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? So they marvel at the buildings as they're leaving. They call Jesus' attention to it. And Jesus makes this stunning statement. You see these buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another. Did they just ignore that? Did Did it just evaporate from their minds? No. It provoked their thought as they're on their way from the temple to the Mount of Olives. It makes them think. It challenges them. Wait a minute. These words of Jesus are contrary. He's seeing something different than we're seeing. And his words provoked challenge. And his words provoked curiosity. And it appears that they they believed him. It wasn't a matter of whether what he said was going to happen, but when, right? And so he says, they say, 
when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? They believe that Jesus was speaking the truth. It's not a matter of whether it will happen. When will this happen? Now, here's what complicates things. Matthew's version is this. Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? That's what's going to make interpreting this chapter so difficult. Where is Jesus talking about the destruction of Jerusalem? And where is he talking about his second coming in the end of the age? So in future messages, we're going to have to tackle that, okay? But not now, thankfully. I have more time to study it, and I'm grateful. Let's come away with some applications from what we see this morning. First of all, can we not conclude from what we see here that Jesus Christ is a prophet of God? A prophet of God is one who speaks the words of God. And according to the Old Testament, the test of a true prophet is what he prophesied had to become true. Otherwise, he was a false prophet and was to be stoned. Well, here it is, 30 AD, and Jesus is saying this beautiful temple complex is going to be utterly leveled to the ground 40 years later in 70 AD. That's exactly what happened. What does that prove? Jesus Christ is a prophet. He speaks the words of God. But secondly, Jesus Christ is more than a prophet. You remember when Jesus had that interchange with that immoral Samaritan woman recorded in John 4? And at one point, as he's talking to her, she says, Sir, I perceive you to be a prophet. And then as the conversation goes on, the subject of Messiah comes up, Christ. And when she speaks of the Christ coming, Jesus says these words, I who speak to you am he. I am he. And he's acknowledging the Christ is here. You're looking at him. Now, Christ, as we've seen in previous messages, means anointed one. And Christ fulfills the threefold anointed office from the Old Testament. Priests were anointed, prophets were anointed, and kings were anointed. Jesus, as the Christ, fulfills all of those offices. As prophet, he comes to reveal the truth of God. As priest, he comes to remove our sin, dying in our place, dying in the place of sinners. And as king, he comes to rule over our hearts. And if you sit here this morning and you're not yet a believer in Jesus, my plea to you, my invitation to you, even my command to you in the name of Christ is that you believe in Jesus as the Christ. You believe in him as the prophet who spoke the very words of God. Believe in him as the final priest who sacrificed not an animal, but sacrificed himself so that by believing in him, all your sin will be borne by Jesus and you will be totally forgiven and fit for heaven. And believe in Jesus as your king. If you're not a child of God, if you're not a believer in Jesus, I can tell you, based on the Bible, where you are. You're in the kingdom of Satan. The Bible says so. And the one ruling over you is Satan himself and your own sin. But if you come to Jesus, he will replace Satan as your king and sin as your king, and he will become your king. And every Christian here will tell you he is a gracious ruler. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. Come to Jesus Christ as prophet, as priest, and king, and let him save you. But one final application, and this is directed at us as believers. Do we not see from this passage that we are called to see 
as Jesus sees. Jesus was seeing something different from the disciples, wasn't he? They were looking at the temple physically, wonderful buildings, beautiful masonry, wonderful architecture. Isn't this great, Jesus? Um, Jesus saw differently. He was looking spiritually. And so I asked the question, what are some areas where we are to see as Jesus sees, not to see with the eyes of flesh, not to see superficially and, and merely physically, but to see with spiritual perception. Let's think about a few categories. How are we to view our nation? Our nation has been for a long time the greatest nation in the world on a number of fronts, right? And many people would look at our nation and say, and want to come here. Why? Because of the strength of our economy, although we're in deep debt, our military strength, the comfort of our citizens. The poorest person here is rich compared to people in Uganda and other countries. The physical comforts, the conveniences, the amenities. From that standpoint, looking at our nation physically, we are a wonderful nation. But God sees, not as man sees. How does God look at the United States of America he looks at us in terms of what we have done with the truth that has been entrusted to us in our history. He sees a nation that has brazenly flouted his moral law with the murder of millions of image bearers in the womb. He sees our rejection of his will for marriage, which is between a man and a woman. He sees our arrogant multiplying of genders when God made but two genders, pink and blue, male and female. And we say, no, there are multiple genders. He looks at us in our militant defense of sexual immorality. And we are no longer a nation under God. But as one has said, we are a nation under God's judgment. And that's why we need to pray for our nation. We need to vote responsibly, do all we can to be salt and light. In this nation, if we see our nation not with physical eyes but spiritual eyes, how should we view churches? Many will look at churches and see beautiful, ornate buildings, and we saw some magnificent cathedrals in Holland and Germany recently. Marvels of architecture, beautiful structures, and many will look at the ornate buildings or the sprawling campuses. The large numbers of people in attendance in the megachurches, the big staff, the multiplicity of programs, the gifted choir, the skilled musicians, the pulpit eloquence, the great popular appeal. That's how a lot of people look at church and the steam church. What do we see if we look through the eyes of Jesus? What does he see when he looks at a church? What does he care about? Does he not care about whether his truth is being declared? faithfully and fully, the whole counsel of God, whether his son is being lifted up as the only savior of sinners, whether the errors that are most threatening the gospel in our day are being resisted and controverted, whether he's being worshiped in spirit and in truth, whether the people there love one another because of their love for God and his love for them, whether the people are using the gifts he has given them for the building up of the body, whether they're fulfilling all those one another duties toward one another, and whether they have a heart to reach the lost both in their own community and to the ends of the earth. Isn't that how Jesus views a church and what he desires in a church? 
How should we view other people? Paul makes an interesting statement in 2 Corinthians 5.16. He says, therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. How would Paul have viewed Jesus before he was converted? He's a rogue rabbi, right? That that movement needs to be squashed, and he was a, a rabid persecutor of the church. Jesus is a rogue rabbi. Well, he met Jesus, and Jesus humbled him, and he became a willing bondservant of Jesus for the rest of his life. He once looked at Jesus with the eyes of flesh, but afterward he looked at Jesus with the eyes of faith. And we need to look at other people with the eyes of faith and not flesh. So often we look at people according to their physical appearance, their beauty or lack of it, their skin color, their ethnicity, their education, their vocation, their social status, their background. And those things have their place, and we recognize those things. But our most important perception of other people need to be, is this person saved or lost? Are they heaven-bound or hell-bound? If they are heaven-bound and regenerate, that is my brother, that is my sister. I need to love them as such. I need to do everything I can to encourage them on their way to heaven and build them up because that's my family. And if they're not, then we have to do everything we can by the way we live, by the way we speak, to try to influence them to come to Christ. We don't look at people so much superficially with the eyes of flesh. We look with the eyes of faith. Where are they? And we relate accordingly. How should we view ourselves? So often we can judge ourselves based on what we're doing, doing, doing. We're busy, busy, busy for Jesus. Remember the incident with Martha and Mary. Martha was very busy, and Jesus had to give her a little gentle rebuke. Martha, Martha, you're worried and bothered about so many things. A few things are needful, really only one. And Mary has chosen the better part, seated at Jesus' feet. Jesus isn't so much concerned with what we do. He is, but why we do it. Proverbs 16 says, all a man's ways are right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the motive. The Lord weighs the heart. Yeah, we want to do for the Lord, but more importantly is who are we and why are we doing it? Watch over your heart with all diligence. Out of it flow the issues of life. So Jesus looks spiritually and not superficially, and we need to do the same. And then futuristically and not presently. Jesus looked with a view to what's going to happen, not the present condition of this this temple. Um, They saw beautiful buildings. He saw a heap of rubble. And we need to look at people not according to where they are now, but where they're headed. Remember Psalm 73, Asaph the psalmist is struggling. He's trying hard to keep his heart pure. And he's looking at the wicked and he's saying, they are on easy street. They have an easy time of it. Am I wasting my time trying to keep my heart pure when these wicked people who aren't trying to be godly at all, they're having a good time of it. He said, my feet almost slipped until I came into the sanctuary of the Lord and I perceived their end. God had put them in slippery places. He saw not only where they were in their present prosperity, despite their wickedness, he saw where they were headed. They were headed to judgment. They were headed to hell. And we need to look at people, not so much according to their present circumstances, 
but futuristically as to where they're headed. It will help our boldness as witnesses if you look at those people who don't know God and imagine where they will be in a hundred years without Jesus Christ. They will be in a horrible place of torment of body and soul if they die without Jesus. Won't that help your boldness and overcome your petty fears of man? It will also help us to view one another rightly. Our brothers and sisters can be annoying to us, right? It can be a pain, sometimes hard to love. But picture where that annoying brother or sister is going to be in a hundred years. According to Jesus, the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. I remember a tract I read in college soon after I was converted. It was called Destined for Greatness. Every child of God is destined for greatness. They're going to be beautiful someday. It will help us bear with the warts and blemishes of one another when we consider what that person's going to look like in a hundred years. They're going to shine forth brighter than the sun in the Father's kingdom. And then finally, emotionally, the disciples were beaming with pride as they looked at the temple. Jesus was full of grief. We need to bring our emotions into alignment with Jesus' emotions. And here's the truth. Our emotions flow from our thinking. When we perceive rightly, we will feel rightly. When we view reality as Jesus does, we will feel what Jesus felt. We will have joy over the things that gives our Lord joy, the salvation of sinners. Right? There's joy in heaven over one sinner that repents. John said, I have no greater joy than this than to hear of my children walking in the truth. When you see your brothers and sisters growing in the truth, like holy John, the apostle, we have joy in that. When we see God working, when we see God's providences, our sister shared this morning how God is opening up doors and doing things beyond what they could do. We rejoice in that because we say, this is God's doing. This ministry is God's ministry. We're his willing servants, but he's the one doing the heavy lifting. He's the one opening the doors. And we delight in those things. We have joy in the things that gives our Lord joy. And then we also have sadness and grief over what makes our Lord weep as he wept over Jerusalem. If only, if only, but you are unwilling. And we see our loved ones and our friends who are stubborn and unbelieving and it ought to break our hearts with grief. We're weeping with the sorrow of Jesus. Jesus was full of compassion. He looked at those who were oppressed and widows and orphans and blind and crippled and deaf and lonely and marginalized, and his heart went out to them. And when we're seeing reality as Jesus does, we will feel what Jesus felt, even compassion. And we will get angry with the things that made Jesus angry. Some Christians say, oh, I never get angry. I want to say that's too bad, because Jesus did. Now, we often get angry for wrong reasons and wrong ways, but if you never get angry, you're not like Jesus. There are things that made Jesus angry. Anger is the flip side of love. You can't love something or someone without hating its opposite. And we're thinking like Jesus, we will be angry. The things that made Jesus angry, oppression, abuse, lying, deceit, falsehood, idolatry, unbelief. So brothers and sisters, God sees not as man sees. And the son of God, the God man did not see as the disciples were seeing, may we grow in seeing and feeling more like our Savior Jesus, what he saw and felt, being more and more conformed to his image as we're on the path to being perfected in glory and being with him forever. Let's pray and we'll sing a final hymn.
Lord Jesus, we thank you for what we see of you in this brief passage. Help us to take our thoughts captive to you, to see reality as you see it, and to feel as you felt. We ask in your name.